The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. This morning's scripture reading is from Acts 13, verses 26 to 43. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent a message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the, tree, from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I'll give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But but he who God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that though this man, forgive, through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, Everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, ye scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ. Thank you, Olivia. Uh, Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Christ Presbyterian Church. Uh, if, you are, if I haven't had the pleasure to meet you, my name is Paul Lim, and I've been here since 2016, serving in the capacity as a scholar in residence. That means uh, these days, about once a month, I get to uh, come up here and talk to you about what the passage of Scripture has to say about, um, about life and the Lord today. Um, I just have to make a couple of caveats as I begin. The title of today's sermon is Preaching to a Hostile Crowd. That's not you. Okay. <laughs> I did not come up with a title, so I just kind of work with what I got. But that's, I'm not talking about you, so please get that out of your mind. If I didn't mention it, that would have been a lot better. But in case there were some shreds of doubt, like, is he talking to me about me being a hostile crowd member? No, that's not it. 
Second caveat is a very important one. Uh, tomorrow is President's Day holiday, and I'd like to begin with a prayer, a prayer for our elected officials, not just limited to uh, the president. We had a gov um, we've, our church have, has had a governor of, a former, former governor of Tennessee attend our church, and uh, one of the current U.S. senators, Senator Marshall Blackburn, attend Christ Press as well. So whatever our politics may be, I owe it to the Lord to pray for all our elected officials, not just the president, not just for those whose political perspectives lines up perfectly with mine own or our own, because if that were the case, I couldn't pray for anyone in office today. <laughs> so that's not in any office of both parties, because there are some things about each party that I love and some things about each party that I may not love. But that's not what the Bible says. In Romans chapter 13, unequivocally, the Apostle Paul mandates that all Christians lift up a prayer for those in authority. And he was writing in the context of the Roman Empire. Uh, none of the emperors were actually in, uh, you know, finding Christianity something that was uh, you know, fabulous or fantastic. They found it to be obnoxious and odious. So let's uh, lift up a prayer for our elected officials among us as we look to the Lord. Gracious God, as you have been working through history, through um, broken vessels of yours, you mercifully and marvelously continue to form us according to your purposes. Our governments throughout the world are seeking to do the right thing and the good thing and the beautiful thing in the eyes of not only the constituency, but above all, in the sight of God. So we pray for our government now, whether it is our president or vice president, or our governor, Bill Lee, or Mayor John Cooper, or Senators Blackburn and Haggerty, and other elected officials throughout our state and cities. Pray that your hand will be upon them. May they seek the true flourishing of all of your people. May their work be uh, energized and informed by faith, faith in Christ, faith in the living God, so that their work will be indeed uh, not an exercise in futility, but an exercise in fruitfulness and fulfillment, Lord. In your name we pray these things. Amen. Amen. So um, we come across a text today that has just been read for us that is quite intriguing, and that for three reasons. It, uh, I don't know whether you've noticed it or not, but it gives us a very, very up-close and personal look at the apostolic core of their message. What is apostolic core? That means that the teaching and preaching of the early Christian community, what is it that they began to teach? And you might say, well, we already know because that's what I believe. I get that. But at the same time, one of the things, dynamic things about the book of Acts is that as you follow along, it gives you a very, very good sense of what the early church was up against, what the early church is beginning to articulate in their own understanding of God, in their own understanding of self and society and their work at hand. In uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 2, as the Apostle Paul, whom we're going to encounter in today's text as well, talks about uh, his gospel, and this is what he calls it, in a phrase that is slightly odd because he doesn't use that phrase elsewhere a lot, and we don't see that in the gospels, it is a phrase called the gospel of God. The gospel, not of Jesus Christ, but he says, I am going to give you this gospel of God. And what we see here is quite similar to that because it is Paul and Barnabas who are actually giving this message to uh, God-fearing Gentiles as well as many in the synagogue, many Jews as well. So uh, today's sermon will be built upon the foundation of the following six verbs, six verbs that encapsulate the identity and activity of God. 
So six words, six verbs, in fact, that basically describe for us who God is and what God does, what God has done, therefore, by extension, what God is doing even today. So in the first point, we'll talk about two of those six verbs, second point, the next two, and the third point, the last two. So you ready? All right, let's get right to it. So our first point uh, shows God is the one who promises and fulfills. God promises and fulfills, two verbs. Second point will be, it shows God who knows and loves, knowing and loving. And third and the final point shows God to be the one who frees and justifies us. Okay. So let's get right to the first point. The first point is that this good news shows us God who promises and fulfills. And we have read this text that was uh, slightly lengthy, but gives you a pretty good sense of what it is that Paul was preaching as he was going from place to place. You know, whether it is uh, from Paphos to Perga to Pisidian Antioch, these names that are relatively unfamiliar to us. Many nowadays are smaller cities in modern-day Turkey, and these are cities that really had quite a lot to do with the blossoming movement called early Christianity. So the first point is God is seen, uh, shown here as the one who promises and fulfills. So uh, let me ask you this very important question. What would you say is the relationship between the Old and the New Testaments? Right? This is a fundamental question. I think it's an important question for all of us, whether you are a deacon, deaconess, or elder, or have been coming here for one month or 20 years. It's an important question if you uh, consider yourself as someone who is considering the case, of, case for Christ, the relationship between the Old and the New Testament, Hebrew Bible and Christian New Testament, right? Among other things, I think there's, we, we will see right throughout the Old Testament, it is God who makes promises. God who makes promises right from the very start, right? When God uh, creates Adam and Eve, humankind, God gives them a command or what is called a cultural mandate. He says, you know what? Go out and be fruitful and multiply. But also in that command, God promises. God promises that as you do so, I will be with you and your, your work, of, work of your hand will not be exercised in futility or fruitlessness. Rather, it'll actually be one of fulfillment and fruitfulness. God actually promises and also God fulfills. So that's what we see right in the beginning. But even with the fall, when the first family decides to go against divine command and divine promise, God nonetheless promises. God promises that I am actually going to instill a sense of enmity between your seed and their seed, the seed of the evil one, and I'm going to eventually triumph my grace not greed, my grace rather than enmity or evil will ultimately triumph. And then we go through the books of Exodus and the five books of Moses and the monarchy and the entrance of promised land and exile period as well. These are all promises that God makes. But then the other relationship is this. One of the ways to think about the relationship between the Old and the New Testaments is that whereas the Old Testament is kind of setting things up, though it is in and of itself very important, in and of itself finds its own integrity as a religious institution, as national identity, and as a cultural kind of practice. But one, is, what, one thing that is really important is there is an organic connection that God promises in the Old Testament. Christians have claimed and proclaimed that God actually fulfills them not only throughout the time of Israel, but finally and in this most beautiful way through the work and life 
of the Messiah called Jesus. So looking at the book of Exodus, you can look at it as a, as a liberation event for the people of Israel, but also it is kind of looking forward to our emancipation, our liberation in Christ Jesus. Looking at this whole story of entrance into the promised land and kind of the Canaan, the promised land of Canaan, uh, the writer of Hebrews says, you know what, that is actually a foreshadowing of our eternal rest in Jesus. And looking at the entire period of David and Israel's monarchy, kings, uh, many of the writers, especially Paul, sees that in fulfilled in our true king in Jesus Christ. So the relationship between the old and the new was something like promise and fulfillment. And that's what we see right here as well. In verse 32, we bring you the good news that what God promised to our fathers, that this God has fulfilled. So God's promise were articulated throughout the period of ancient Israel. And Paul has this conviction or audacity to stand in front of people and say, you know what, guess what here? What God has promised, we're now seeing and reaping the fulfillment and fruit of that promise right now. Not only promise and fulfillment, but also shadow and reality. And yet, as I've said earlier, what they had was not any less real nor deficient. That God promises and God does fulfill. And it's an important thing for us to remember because we're living in, a, living in our lives of broken promises, quite frankly, right? Well, you know, I don't know about you, but I have broken at least one promise in my life. You're laughing. I don't know why you're laughing, but I'm, I'm, that's there. at least one promise. Probably like, hopefully not one promise a week, but you know, think about how many promises we make. And with every intention, and you know what I was trying to do the other day? I was actually trying to download the best to-do list app. <laughs> Spent about two hours trying to look for one. And I, if you have any suggestions, please tell me, because I tried to download the Microsoft one, Google one, and I didn't really find them that hand, you know, useful for me. So, but why am I trying to download a to-do app, to-do list app? Is because I find myself not being able to deliver or fulfill my own promise that I make to myself. How many of you kind of come up with your daily to-do list and check off every one of them? Every day. I don't know about you. I think I do that maybe once every two weeks or so. Like, let's say you have seven items, you cross off all seven of them. I don't know about you, but there's a deep, deep satisfaction that comes with knowing that I've crossed off the last thing on my to-do list. But that deep satisfaction is predicated on the fact that so often, very often, I'm not able to fulfill my own promise to myself, let alone to others. So we're living in a context where the individual or societal, economic and political, religious and cultural context where our promises or personal, whether it is about marriage or friendship or whatever else, or corporations and covenants and contracts we make are often broken. So we become understandably, understandably once bitten and twice shy. So I want us to really kind of personalize this, this first point. God is the one who promises and fulfills. It may be easy for us to accept the fact that God promised us Jesus Christ and he fulfilled it, but do you really believe that in your own life? Do you really believe that God is the one who promises whatever to you and God is fulfilling them, God has fulfilled them? And then the important question becomes this, what is it that God has promised to me? Right? Do you wonder about that? Like, what is it that God has promised? Has God promised me middle-class life, upper-middle-class life? Has God promised me prosperity, power, and prestige? What is it that God promises? So it's one of those P words. God promises one thing. And you better love this. 
God promises presence. God promises presence. I am with you. Now, let me tell you something. This is going to come across slightly offensive, but hear me out, please. If you find what I've just said, that P word called presence, unsatisfactory or somewhat somewhat lacking, maybe what we want is God who is our celestial vending machine, God who gives us what we want, but we may not be actually wanting the giver himself. St. Teresa of Avila, a 16th century Christian from Spain, said this in in her prayer, let nothing upset, upset you. So she wrote these words, let nothing upset you, let nothing frighten you. Everything is changing. God alone is changeless. Patience attains the goal. Who has God lacks nothing. God alone fills every need. God promises God's presence. I am with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you because when you have me, you have everything. You have everyone. And I hope and pray that that will be my prayer as I hope it is yours as well. First point is God. This gospel of God shows us God as the one who promises and fulfills. Now to the second point then. Second point is that this good news, the gospel of God, shows God who knows and loves. We see that in verse 33. In verse 33, it says that God has fulfilled this to their children by raising Jesus. All right, three words, by raising Jesus. What could be simpler than that? But I want us to park our kind of theological vehicles and kind of delve into this a little bit. I want you to think about the significance of that phrase, by raising Jesus. By raising Jesus. What do you think this phrase entails or presupposes or assumes? Among other things, I think this phrase, by raising Jesus, assumes or presupposes that God's demonstrable action of promise and fulfillment took on the form of the resurrection of Jesus, obviously, though, Paul, of course, yes. But before we get there, though, we have to acknowledge that death had to precede the resurrection, that this promised seed, this eternal Son of God, this messianic figure, this, you know, relatively obscure figure who ministered for a long three years, that many in the early church began to say, wait a minute, he's much more than a mere mortal. And because of this resurrection event that the, our scriptures talked about, but when it happened, we really can't, could not believe it. We wouldn't believe our eyes and ears. This resurrection is the pivotal event in all of human history that we actually get to reinterpret all of our events' significance in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But death had to precede the resurrection. In other words, the very specific mode of accomplishing God's plan of reconciliation and redemption was none other than through the gruesome death on the cross. On the cross, Jesus died alone. He experienced the unimaginable and inexpressible anguish of separation from the Father, at least that moment of death that it came. At least in the moment of death, he experienced what it means to go through that portal called death. That as a human person, he really did experience death. It wasn't fake death. It wasn't halfway death. It was a full-on death. Full throttle death of, you know, separation of your body and soul. 
and cessation of breathing and cessation of your bodily organic functions that indicates that this person, this flesh, has stopped breathing and thus being. God, who knows all things and loves by sending his only eternal begotten son to die on our behalf. Let me ask you this, though. Did God need to experience that? Did God need experiential knowledge for God to understand what it means to love God's creatures? I don't know if you heard my question. Let me, let me say this. It's a pretty important question, I think. Did God have to experience death in Jesus Christ for God to know what it means and what it feels like uh, to experience death? At one level, no. God is perfectly God. God does not ex- need to experience all of these things to know that something is not good or something is good indeed. In a way, it's sort of like this. Throughout the history of Christianity, people have been debating this point. Couldn't God simply just say, I forgive you all. I cancel all of your sins. Couldn't God have done that, many have said, and said, yes, but there is something amiss, many said, because God couldn't simply, God could simply have canceled the debt. But then many, you know, thinkers and theologians and Christians have said, then there will be something missing. What is a missing thing? Then what is the death of Jesus really about? Did it do something to the identity of God? Yes, it did. But more importantly, it does something to our own identity, how we understand God to be and how we understand God's relationship with us to be. That if God is not going to spare his one and only son, if God is going to say, you know, I'm going to give you the very thing that I am who I am, that my one eternal son, the one who is very God of very God, he's going to experience human death. That shows the depth with which to which I'm willing to travel to be with you. The death of this eternal Son of God showed two things among others. That it, God who exacted, you know, kind of, he required exact justice, he got it in the eternal death of this human Jesus. But at the, at, on the other hand, and very importantly, it also showed the, the infinite love, the immeasurable love of God transacted, that God is not going to withhold the most important thing in God's own self-life. In a way, God wouldn't want to enjoy the joy of life without us. God chose the death to be with us. That to me is, the more I think about it, mind-boggling. Even as I was sitting in the back of the sanctuary, thinking about this very point, it really is mind-boggling to me that this God would actually go that length to do so. Um, Let me try to illustrate it this way. So um, one of the... One of the Broadway uh, hits a few years ago, it's, uh, it's also been made into a movie. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a musical called Dear Evan Hansen. Uh, some of you may be familiar Dear Evan Hansen, others of you may not be. Uh, it's now been made into a movie and I think there's, they're showing it here in, in, at TPAC in a couple of weeks. It's a musical that was phenomenally popular and has been made into a movie and one of the songs in the musical that really captures this sense of alienation loneliness and the universal human condition because the point I'm trying to drive home is something like this. Among other things that God could have done, God chose his path of the death on the cross because cross means, it symbolizes curse of God and death really means separation from God. God chose that particular specific mode of exiting from this world for his one and only son in order for him to really experience what it means to be alone, in order for him to really experience what the, 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 the fewer of God-forsakenness. And dear Evan Hansen, this main character, Evan Hansen, feels God-forsaken. 
Evan Hansen is on, on different prescription meds. He feels alienated. He feels lonely. He seems to carry the weight of the entire world upon his shoulder. And there's a beautiful song, a really poignant song, painful song even, called Waving Through a Window. As I heard that song, as I watched the YouTube video a few times, you know, it just kind of brought me to tears because I don't know about you, but high school years were tough for me. I don't like to remember my high school years, and something about this dear Evan Hansen, that really hit me and resonated with me and brought me to Christ. Let me read you the words of this song. On the outside, always looking in, will I ever be more than I've always been? Because I'm tap, tap, tapping on the glass, I'm waving through a window. I try to speak, but nobody can hear, so I wait around for an answer to appear. While I watch, watch, watching people pass, I am waving through a window. Oh, can anybody see? Is anybody waving back at me? We start with stars in our eyes. We start believing that we belong. But every, every sun doesn't rise, and no one tells you where you went wrong. Nobody can hear. Wait around for an answer to appear. Can anybody see? Is anybody waving back at me? Evan Hansen is in some ways really powerfully encapsulating the universal human condition for longing and belonging. Dearly beloved, I want you to know that Jesus can hear. In fact, Jesus hears. He also waits around even now as he's the answer to all of our longings and, and desire for belonging. He can see you and me, and he's waving back at us as we will experience in the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. The third and the final point, then, is that this good news of God shows us God who frees and justifies, who frees and declares righteous. We see that in verse 39. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you are not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Or as our version reads, and by him, everyone who believes is free from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Do you feel free before God today, this very moment? Do you feel your conscience is clear before God? Think about the rituals we go through, and by ritual, I don't mean anything derogatory at all. The constituent components that are put together carefully, prayerfully, theologically, to make this into an encounter with God, right? This worship, the liturgies are kind of put together in a very careful way, that when we actually have done the, the, the confession of sin and declaration of, of um, uh, pardon, that means that in that particular segment of our worship, what we are experiencing or are supposed to be experiencing is the weightiness of our, of our kind of uh, um, undeserving or not feeling free exactly, and also by divine fiat or by God's promise, God declares us in Jesus to be right and righteous. The only way that you can answer it in the affirmative, the questions, do you feel free before God, or do you feel your conscience is clear before God, the only way that we can answer it in the affirmative is if we can get our head and heart around the fact that God sees us in Christ. God sees you and me in Christ. That's why Paul in Colossians says, Christ in you is the hope of glory. Union with Christ, that you are united with Christ, that we're not separated from Christ, but united by the work of the Holy Spirit that brings us together. That union with Christ means exactly that, 
that I do not belong to myself, but rather in body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. We say that quite often here in our worship services. So in that very same document called the Heidelberg Catechism, the sixth uh, question number 60 is, uh, is set forth as follows. How are you righteous before God? How are you righteous before God? And the answer is this. Only by true faith in Jesus Christ, although my conscience accuses me that I've grievously sinned against all of God's commandments, in fact, I've never kept any of them, and I'm still inclined to all evil, but God, without any merit of mine own, out of mere grace imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Jesus Christ. He grants these things to me as if I've never committed any sin as if I myself have accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me, if only I accept this gift with a believing heart. Believing heart. Unbelievable, yet we are commanded to believe. The, to me, one of the most beautiful illustrations about the justification by faith alone comes from uh, um, Les Mis. Uh, you know, again, a musical and novel and a movie. Jean Valjean is the main character, and some of you may remember uh, Jean Valjean was uh, in, incarcerated for a number of years, and he uh, enters prison uh, with a desire to do something for his impoverished family around the time of the French Revolution. But after his attempts for jailbreak, and he ends up spending nearly two decades behind bars. And he's given a number, it's 24601, and then he goes as a day worker, a daily wage earner, and he goes to this town, and he, uh, the, the people who had hired him for the day hears that he's an ex-con, so he says, we're not going to hire you, we're not going to pay you, get, get out of here. And then in that commotion, who shows up but the country, uh, that village priest? the village priest who happens to be the bishop of the diocese, and he says, what's going on here? And he says, well, this man has the audacity to claim wage, even though he's an ex-con, and once an ex-con, always an ex-con, and let's just get him out of here. And he says, you know what? What we have, uh, he can have, and what we eat, he can also share, and then our spare bed, he can sleep, and the next day he can go. So they have this kind of, and if you have seen the musical, or read the novel, or watched the movie, they have this very simple meal with the priest and the helper, and then Jean Valjean. And then, after the scene is cleared, right, and then there's a kind of rude commotion and, you know, the priest is awakened to all the noise that's going on outside, and guess what? Jean Valjean is now pressed down to the ground, and, the, you know, the constable and other people are saying, you know, good father, you're always gullible. You're always too trusting because, you know, this guy was actually uh, running away from our town, having stolen these things from you. And then, but he had this audacity to, uh, to claim that you've actually given these things to him. And if you remember that scene, the priest says, yes, that is right. Jean Valjean hears words that he completely did not expect. If the priest had said, what an ingrate, you return my favor with thievery, then he would have been completely justified in declaring justice. Jean Valjean hears the opposite of that. Jean Valjean does not feel right before God or before this priest. And, but this assurance that comes from the priest that says, you know what, it's all good. You know he's right, and he actually forgot that I've given him more. So he should have taken more from me, not less. And everyone is surprised, and most surprised of all is Jean Valjean. The scene is now clearer for the confrontation or conversation between the priest and Jean Valjean. And the priest tells him, listen, I purchased your soul with these things, now live a different life. 
And to me, that is the most beautiful illustration of declaration of your standing, which was totally flawed and wrong and convicted and guilty as charged. And yet, because of the, 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 the pastor's absolution, granting of forgiveness and proclamation of the fact that your conscience is clear in the sight of God, he's now able to go through that portal with deep anguish of his soul. Deep anguish of his soul. You know why? Because he sings his song, beautiful song. You know what he says? Who am I? Who am I? Why did I let this man touch my soul in such a way that I don't know who I am? Am I too, and he really kind of struggles with this. Am I Zhong Valjean? Am I 24601? And you know, that becomes a pivotal moment in Zhong Valjean's life that he begins a new journey. New journey. That is because he was now freed and he's now justified. Justification means just as if I've never sinned because of what Christ has accomplished for me. Dearly beloved, we're coming to the table of the Lord now. In a few moments, we're going to all kind of hear these words of, of the institution and, 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 and prayer. And you may even hear, you know, don't walk or run or whatever. And then we'll all come forward to receive this beautiful gift of Christ communicating himself to us. Christ is the one in whose death has experienced what it means to be lonely and alienated and God forsaken. Christ is the one who in his act of freedom became one of us. The Lord of all became the servant of all. He's the one who frees us and justifies us. As we come to this table, I pray and hope that we'll come with eager expectation of encountering this living Christ. As John Calvin said in that kind of uh, fantastic sermon on Sursum Corda, that means we lift up a heart. He says, you know what? Our, the presence of Jesus is not here, but what the Holy Spirit does is he lifts up our heart. And we, we, are in, we are kind of, you know, as I'm looking at this light, is something is pretty, you know, really brilliant and bright. It's sort of like that in a, in, a, in a figurative language. And it says, when the Holy Spirit lifts up our heart, we're able to see Christ seated in the heavenlies. And it is with whom that person that we're communicating through these earthly elements of bread and grape juice and wine. And yet, Calvin said, you know what? That reality of communion is nonetheless as real as something that I touch right now, this pulpit, or something that I touch my own hand, says, because if you believe in the Spirit, if you believe in the Holy Spirit, and what the Holy Spirit is, does is as real as what you're doing with your own flesh and blood. I pray that you'll come with that conviction. pray that you'll come with that hope. I pray that you'll come with that faith and love. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you for your beautiful promise that you have fulfilled for us in Jesus Christ. Thank you that in our moments of loneliness and alienation, you come to us as the one who experienced that, not for the sake of divine identity, but for the sake of human redemption. That you remind us, hey, I know what it means to be handed over, betrayed. I know what it means to spend the night in prison. I know what it means to, to be utterly forsaken, and yet I'm not alone. So thank you, Lord, for promising your presence with us. Thank you, Lord, for freeing us and justifying us as if we have never sinned, and we have it by the transformation and transaction of the gospel language of justification that we're made free in you. Now help us to be free to serve and bear much fruit as we come to your table. May you feed us with your gracious hand. Thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.